My very first internship was for Paramount Pictures. It was 1991, and I was hired to serve as the college intern for the University of Maryland and other D.C. schools. Essentially, my job was to promote the studio's movies across local campuses. I was like, no way. And they were like, way. I couldn't believe it. While I didn't know it at the time, this internship literally charted a course for my career. Now listen, some movies were tough. Anyone remember The Temp, starring Timothy Hutton and Lara Flynn Boyle? Or perhaps Brain Donors, a forgettable reimagining of the Marx Brothers? I didn't think so. But in early 1992, I got the call. I needed to develop a promotional campaign for Wayne's World, the film adaptation of the popular SNL sketch. Now, this was something I could sell to college kids, although admittedly, Wayne's World basically sold itself. This would be the very first entertainment campaign I worked on. And given how many I've worked on since, well, man, that's a big deal. The film and the work I did holds a special place in my heart. So as Wayne's World celebrates its 30th anniversary, which is hard to believe, I asked two very close friends to join me to look back on the film and discuss why it connected with us as profoundly as it did. I met these boys freshman year in college, and we quickly became best friends. They appreciate the genius of Rob Lowe, and they are two of my very favorite people in life. Today's guests are David Buckingham and Tom Lucia, and this is backed by popular demand. Love you on the couch. Wayne, did you know that Noah does all his own commercials? Yeah, I got a new one where I rap. Come bust a move where the games are played. It's chill, it's fresh, it's Noah's Arcade. Come bust a move where the games are played. It's chill, it's fresh, it's Noah's Arcade. Come bust a move where the games are played. It's chill, it's fresh, it's Noah's Arcade. Come bust a move where the games are played. It's chill, it's fresh, it's Noah's Arcade. I don't normally tell my uh, my guests what music I'm using for their intro. That's a, that's a big thing for me. I spend more time than I should on the intro music. However, last week I started digging around this idea that I wanted to use the Noah's arcade rap, which Buck, I know you and I, you and I quote that to each other more than we should. Of course I, I went online and I found it very fairly easily, but what I wasn't expecting to find was that somebody laid, you know, a music beat to the, uh, to the rap. And when I found that, that was the winner. So Luch, you are wearing pink earphones. Talk about the pink earphones. Sure, absolutely. Uh, this is not, uh, they say necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, I, I did not have uh, quality recording equipment at the ready. Uh, and I apologize for that. And I have two teenage daughters uh, who apparently at some point have purchased a pair of pink headphones with a microphone that glows in the dark. Uh, and so I put it on and uh, you said it sounded good. So we're going to go with it. If that's okay with you guys, as long as it's not a distracting, I don't want anyone off their game because of my pink glow in the dark headphones. Uh, gentlemen, welcome. Uh, I'm thrilled to finally have both of you guys on the show. Uh, as I said in my intro, you guys are two of my very favorite people. I mean that. And, um, and before I forget, if either of you want to sing the Noah's arcade rap at any time, during this episode, please, you've got my permission. Are you guys feeling uh, chill and fresh? I am feeling chill and fresh, but uh, maybe my singing voice isn't up to it right now. David Randall Buckingham, let's start with you. Uh, most people that know you call you Buck, although I, I went back and thought about this. I never really called you Buck a lot. 
through the years. I mean, I did, but not like everybody else did. I usually called you Duker um, or even just Dave when I'm feeling a little, uh, a little sassy. Um, so Dave, introduce yourself. Where are you from? What do you do for a living? Any fun facts? What do we want to know? Well, I'm kind of the same way with Tom, actually. Um, you know, everybody called him Looch back in the day. And I just started calling him Tom just because it sounded funny to me. And and then I just kept with it. And uh, so I kind of stuck with it since then. But uh, yeah, uh, Dave Buckingham, I'm coming from the metropolis of Croom, Maryland. Um, I worked as a contractor to NASA for 26 years, which is frightening along with the other uh, lengths of time that we're going to talk about in this show. Um, so I've worked on uh, flight software maintenance, maintenance for two scientific satellites. And um, one of them actually turned 20 years old this year. So, you know, time is passing and we're hitting all kinds of milestones. Fun fact about yourself. I'm going to just tell all of our listeners uh, that you are once a member of the Washington Redskins marching band. Were you not? Indeed. And we had our, uh, I guess you'd call it farewell dinner this past weekend. People that had been there for like, you know, there's one guy, he's 93 and he had just finished up his, I believe, 53rd season um, when we last, you know, had a band before the pandemic and stuff. So, uh, yeah, we all got together the other night and had a good time, had a good dinner and actually played through a couple tunes and sounded pretty decent. Now would be a good time to ask about the, the name the Commanders. Are you a fan of the Commanders? Are you against the Commanders? Where do you stand on it? Uh, it's it's a punt. It's a big punt, I think. It's <laughs> very it's political. I mean, listen, that, this is probably a podcast for another day, but I feel like they could have gone on a lot of different directions. And it just felt like the Commanders, it just, it was a letdown. Uh, it's a special day here at the podcast because it is Thomas Robert Lucia's birthday. Happy birthday, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you both. I, I, I'm very, very excited. This is the cherry on top of the Sunday that I've had today. Speaking with you two, it's awesome. So you didn't have a fudgy the whale Carvel cake? No. <laughs> what about, did you, have, did you have cookie puss? No. I'm flattered that you're on the podcast on your birthday because this, mm-hmm. this show is not worthy, Luch, to quote Wayne's World, but uh, we really appreciate you being here. So most people called you Luch. Um, I've definitely called you Luch, but uh, sometimes I call you Joseph, which is inside baseball, a story for another day. But uh, tell us where you're calling in from. What do you do? So uh, my name is Tom Lucia. I am the chief creative officer uh, of a nonprofit here, OLV Charities in uh, Western New York, calling from Buffalo, New York, which is nowhere near New York City, despite what everyone else says. Oh, you're in New York. You probably are in New York City every weekend. No, no, we are not. Uh, we're actually only about 15, 20 minutes away from Canada uh, and Mike Myers' old stomping grounds. Uh, so we're, uh, we got that in common. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, fun fact about me, I, I got a lot of uh, quirks. I got a lot of odd things that have happened to me and uh, uh, because of me. Uh, but I, I'm going to share with you that I've seen Charles Barkley completely naked. <laughs> and I'm just going to leave it out there. I'm going to float it out in the world. He doesn't listen to the podcast, does he? Well, you and I have both met Charles Barkley because he was he was an, a, a, a fellow employee at Turner Broadcasting when I worked there in Atlanta. Um, ran into him at, in an elevator once in New York, actually. Super nice guy. He was fully clothed. Um, he had a suit on. He was not naked. But you need to finish the story. So how did this come about? 
Sure. I was an intern with the then Washington Bullets, and it was my job. I worked for the community relations department, and it was my job to get autographed basketballs from the opposing teams before every game. So what I would do is I would routinely go into the locker rooms before the game, and I would get them signed. And so uh, the Phoenix Suns were in town that particular night, and there was Sir Charles, and he was holding court with all the reporters. Just blew me away. Very fun very engaging gentleman uh, was talking about not only sports, but also was talking about politics really was awesome to kind of see him just kind of hold court like that and be so knowledgeable and funny and things like that. But the downside was he was running out of time to sign my basketball. So he, I'm standing there just kind of hanging out there. And, and so he shoes the reporters away and I said, you know, Mr. Barkley, I've got this from the bullets. And he said, no problem at all. I, I go, I reach down to grab the basketballs. And when I turn around, he is completely naked, uh, completely naked. <laughs> Dave, where do we go from here? <laughs> I don't know. That's it's incredibly awkward. I don't know. I know both of these knuckleheads since uh, freshman year in college. And we're going to get into that in a couple of minutes, but I did want to, Luch, I got to give you the honor of that. I mean, not only were, were we best friends in, in college from freshman year and beyond, but you were my my orientation roommate in college. We're going back to like, I guess, what what would that have been, like July of 89, where you and I first met each other? Is that right? Indeed. Yeah. And, and again, you talk about random circumstance. We were roommates because you were in front of me in line. That was the scientific method used by University of Maryland. And likewise, uh, this was back in the day uh, before they did, you know, match.com type uh, systems to put roommates together. Uh, and of course, I ended up with Buck as my computer assigned roommate uh, for freshman year. So again, uh, it is probably in the stars that we are doing this podcast tonight. I love that. I love the connection. Um, we're going to reference the college piece a little bit more in a few minutes. I'll, I'll save it for that. So what are we doing here? Um, I guess we could blame my brother uh, for this episode because he had this crazy idea for me to do an episode about Top Gun, which we did, I don't know, I guess about a month ago or so, right before the the, the sequel Maverick opened and the movie is killing it at the box office. And he had this idea, like, why don't we, uh, let's go back and revisit Top Gun and talk about it. And I, I really liked that that conversation. I loved the way that episode turned out. And secretly, I've always wanted to do more film based conversations for this show, as opposed to what I've done previously, which is mostly interviews with people I've worked with. But um, I love this notion of going back to revisit films that um, that carry a special place for me. And this is one of those. So I was listening to the Smartless podcast a few weeks ago. Um, I'm not sure if either of you guys listen to that. It's uh, it's Jason Bateman and Sean Hayes and and Will Arnett, and they basically interview major Hollywood heavy hitters every every week. It's it's a good show. They had Mike Myers on recently, and uh, so when I saw I saw Mike Myers was the next guest, I was like, all right, I'm going to check that out. So I listened to it, and uh, really like he's a very like understated guy. Like he definitely he came across um, much different than I expected him to. And I think you know I heard stories back in the day when he was in his. Austin Powers heyday where he wasn't the easiest celebrity to, to deal with. Um, and we're going to touch on that with Wayne's world, but he, um, he just seemed like a regular dude that I think the three of us would love to go grab a beer with. And so when they started talking to him, they didn't really talk about Wayne's world barely at all. They really focused on Austin Powers and, and everything that came after that. It made me realize that Wayne's world turned 30 this year. 
And uh, when I thought about that, I was like, wow, that's really interesting. And Buck, you're shaking your head right now. Um, I shook my head, too. And I thought about 1992 is when that film came out. So, guys, I guess, how do you feel, first of all, when I say that Wayne's World is 30 years old? Like like I was saying earlier with the with the uh, satellite. I mean, it's just we're hitting all these milestones. And that's that's another one that's just it's it's staggering. I can't I, I it's hard to wrap my mind around it. This movie could drive, ride a car. Uh, could get a beer. Yeah, that's uh, we're old men, folks. And I think it was too easy for us to revisit Austin Powers. And I will say that I do love the original Austin Powers, the first one. And that's it's one of the funnier movies I think I've ever seen. And um, but Wayne's World, uh, for numerous reasons, which we're going to get into, is something that I just felt like was ripe for a deeper conversation. And I do think um, what I love most about this movie more than anything else is that. Buck, I, and I can't even imagine how many times I have texted you over the years, and I'll just throw you a line of dialogue from the movie. It could be a popular line. It could be an obscure line. And without, without you know, hesitation, you write me right back, and you usually finish the scene or finish the line, and, I mean, within 99% accuracy. There's a high sense of wasted youth going on uh, from, <laughs> from our knowledge, <laughs> our knowledge base, but, yeah. University of Maryland, which we just talked about, 1989. That's where we met each other that fall. Um, as it turned out, I was in a different dorm than you guys. You guys were you were put in Cumberland along with our buddy Vic. Um, Vic ended up being a guy that we had also met, Luch, at uh, summer orientation, got along with him really well. I was put in the all-male dorm, Ellicott Hall, which was, I guess, like a five-minute walk from where you guys were. We ended up running into each other, I want to say, at the dining hall, right, at some point that first week of a freshman year. And then I, I realized that you guys were in the fun hallway. And long story short, Vic and I eventually made an arrangement uh, where we did not get, I guess, official approval from the University of Maryland, which they were not happy about. But we swapped roommates. So the guy that was living with Vic went to my room and I went to his room. So that left you and me and Buck plenty of uh, time to get along and, and get to know each other. But one of the problems I noticed right away is that Every weekend, there were a lot of guys at Maryland that went home for the weekend. So you were from Buffalo. I was from Connecticut. So we were stuck. We weren't going anywhere. But Buck, you went home just about every weekend, as did Vic. Uh, why did you do that to us? Why did you guys leave us every weekend? <laughs> uh, quite frankly, it was very much a laundry consideration. Um, and, and beyond that, I think Vic and I, who both both of us went home, I think we were just giving you some greater square footage for your room. You had it all to yourself. I thought it was very nice of us, actually. So it was laundry. Do you buy that, Luch? No, that's nonsense. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's nonsense. <laughs> and in fact, I, I do want to double down and say that uh, this is, that it, it did cause quite a bit of hatred and resentment. Uh, no one likes to be alone, Buck. Do you have pets, Buck? D do they like being alone, Buck? That's the way that Denny and I felt, being left behind. And then just, just wait. And we literally waited at the door like a dog does for master to come home. When you came in, he's True. back, he's back. I think he's back. And then we were excited. So this little podcast as amazing and quality content as it's going to provide to the listeners is really just an intervention for us to tell you how much we hate you. But I bet you, Luch, you enjoyed the, the smorgasbord of, of food and sundries that Dave brought back with him every Sunday night. Because I memory serves, you came in, Dave, with like two big sacks worth of stuff. Oh, absolutely. 
There'd be granola bars and fruit roll-ups and sodas and all kinds as, of stuff. As someone who grew up uh, north of the Mason-Dixon line his entire life, to this day, I've never had another bottle of sarsaparilla. <laughs> Am I saying that right? And Buck would come home with these bottles. They were just brown, no label. And and, he, and I'm like, what's that? And he's like, that's sarsaparilla. And it was a magical time. Vic did the same thing where he left me every weekend. He had his, his now wife. He was he was dating Barbie at the time and when he was 18. And they've been together forever. And, um, you know, he went home to Baltimore every weekend. So both of us, Luch, had our own. The good part of it, I guess, is that we had our own room from Friday afternoon through Sunday night, sometimes even Monday morning. So Luch and I, we were like basically at the hip on the weekends, right? I mean, it was you and me and it was Mike Regal, right? He was the other, he was like the other idiot that was from out of town. He was from uh, Reading, PA. So a lot of our Saturday nights, as it turned out, was, was, you know, we'd go to the dining hall or get a pizza, which was probably what we did. And then invariably, we would find ourselves watching Saturday Night Live at some point and this wasn't, you know, this was 89. That was the first year that I think Mike Myers became a cast member. But I got us, I was thinking about this the other day, Luch. That was like one of the heydays of SNL. Wouldn't you say we had Mike Myers, you had Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman, who I know we all have a lot of love for. And who else? Dennis Miller was doing the, uh, the news, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I think I know a lot of generations will say that their Saturday Night Live was the best. Um, but that what I mean. And again, from from our standpoint, in terms of my formative years as a young adult, uh, yeah, you can't beat that cast. And then they went on to do such great things. Uh, Spade was in there too. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Adam Sandler, although he may have come later than that, but again, all of that. You think about the impact that that group had on pop culture. In, now that we are into our fifties, that was Chris Rock, uh, Nor- Norm Macdonald. Uh, so yeah, it was a great a great time. Wayne's World made its Saturday Night Live debut. February 18th, 1989. So actually it had started on SNL a little bit before we actually started our freshman year. So it was earlier that winter. It was based on a sketch called Wayne's Power Minute on Canadian TV. I'm not sure what channel that was. And you would probably know, Luch, because you're near Canada. This was the the off-kilter comic mind of Mike Myers, who created not only Wayne Campbell, but I went back and remembered he did Lothar of the Hill People, uh, Sprockets, and middle-aged man. So I will ask both of you guys, because those were like his, his most popular ones. Dave, who was your, what was your most favorite Mike Myers character or sketch? Yeah. Dieter from Sprockets was fantastic. And, and we took a band trip to Germany in 1994, kind of like right around this time. And uh, we went to a, a disco and I, I thought for sure I'd see him pop out from the wings somewhere at some time, but I never saw him there, but uh, yeah, that was a great character. I liked Lothar of the Hill people, um, but yeah, probably Wayne was still my you know favorite because that was just my my comedy sensibility. That that guy, he's great. I, well, I got to steal uh, an idea that we had talked about before, which was Sprockets, uh, Mike Myers. Again, I don't I don't remember Myers from a lot of sketches, um, but I do remember Sprockets. I did, of course, you know, at the time Wayne Campbell was my favorite. Um, because it was so popular and I did enjoy it. Um, but yeah, I would say, uh, Dieter, uh, from Sprockets, uh, pet my monkey, uh, was, was my favorite. 
Can you? I can't even imagine how Mike Myers is able to convince Lauren Michaels of doing Lothar of the Hill People. I mean, talk about like what a deep, deep cut that that skit was. Like, I mean, I don't even remember even laughing a whole hell of a lot when I watched it, but I I, I want to say that I did. But that was uh, I can't even believe that made air because I know a lot of sketches don't always make it, but that one it just that seemed like only Mike Myers could probably come up with that, right? As my kids will tell you, I don't like to sing and they don't like to hear me sing, but. Lothar of the Hill People. It's middle aged man. <laughs> Still in there. What are you looking at? My gut? I'm working on it. <laughs> that's it, Luch. That's the only impersonation I'm gonna actually I'm not, not true. I'm gonna I'm probably gonna give you some some Rob Lowe in a little bit. All right. So I wanna I wanna talk a little bit more about the movie and how the movie came into our lives. So but I, I wanna digress for a couple of minutes to tie it back to um, an internship that I had done right around this time. So a couple years later, um, I guess I was probably, I guess we were all juniors. Um, I was fortunate enough to be the Paramount Pictures college intern. Um, at this point, I'd already kind of gotten the, you know, the, the taste of working in film marketing. I, I think that's, I had decided I wanted to do that for some kind of career move. So um, I was fortunate enough to get this position where Paramount paid me to be this intern where I got to promote the studio's movies, not only at the University of Maryland, but at other schools, GW and an American and a few others that were in DC. Um, so I, I basically promoted their movies on local campuses. They hooked me up with posters and all sorts of tchotchkes. And my job was to work with the campus, um, the radio station, the newspaper, whatever it was at the time to, to try to promote their movies. So when I heard that this was something I was actually going to get paid to do, I was super excited until they told me that, you know, one of my first projects was 1492 Conquest of Paradise with Gerard Depardieu. Do either of you even remember this movie? The name sounds a little familiar, but that's about it. Tom, how do you promote 1492 Conquest of Paradise? Yeah, what what a what a really lowbrow concept there for college kids to really party around. Uh, 1492. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, believe it or not, I remember distinctly the poster, the movie poster. And that is a hundred percent because of you, Danny. I remember distinctly you trying your best to promote it, uh, even in uh, difficult circumstances. I went back and looked at that movie on IMDb last week, Luch. I actually forgot that Ridley Scott directed that movie. Like that is a big deal. Like that's not like that's Ridley Scott. He's one of the, you know, one of the most acclaimed filmmakers of our generation. He did that movie. Um, I did not do a good job of promoting 1492 Conquest of Paradise. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say the official title every time I reference it. But things got a little bit, a little bit rosier for me with this internship where I got the call that uh, we were going to be promoting Wayne's World. And I think, I think at this point, you know, the three of us knew that they were making a movie of this film. Um, it, it, it came out in that February, but I think they first teased it. I went back and checked this out the other day. When the Adams Family film, when that first movie came out in uh, Thanksgiving of 91, they had a special teaser trailer for Wayne's World was basically like Wayne and Garth, like singing the the Adams Family song. I guess Paramount at the, at the time thought that would be a funny integration between the two films. So I think that was the first time I had caught wind that Wayne's World, the movie was actually coming in early 92. So Paramount hooked me up with all kinds of promo items for that movie. Do you guys remember everything we had? It was, they, they gave me posters. I had shirts, hats, drumsticks, Buck, what else? Did I am I missing something? Orange and white poster. I remember that was up for a, quite a while. But you know, there was also this. Tell us what you're showing me and Tom right now. It is a Wayne's World backstage crew pass, and I present this anywhere I go. 
It gets me uh, off tickets. It gets me backstage. Any kind of concert I go to, it's it's great. I can't believe you still have that. Was that was that something I got? I think it was at the uh, at like a screening or something. I feel have I had to. Guess. Wow. And you, you've had it all this time. You've never lost it. That's impressive. I, I'm sad that I lost my hats. Now, I, I, I remember them giving us like a box of hats, probably had like 50 of them. We all had one, right? I think we were all wearing it for, for a while, Dwayne's World hat. I don't have it anymore. Do you still have either of you guys still have it? I, I did a frantic look for it in the like half hour before we got together and I couldn't find it. But I I am certain it's in this house somewhere. I can't I just couldn't find it. I'm not convinced you don't put it on at some point during this. <laughs> I'm really disappointed, Buck, that you don't have that hat anymore. I know that you probably had that for quite a long time, and it must have just, with all the moves, it probably just lost, fell out, fell out of the wrong box, right? Yep. One of the big things I did for that for that campaign as the intern was we did a a Wayne's World party at the VU, which was not a bar that at that point. Well, neither none of us were even 21 yet when that movie opened. I, I turned 21 a couple months later, but um, we did a we did a big Wayne's World party at the VU, which wasn't that hard for the VU manager to say yes to. Um, we had posters up everywhere. We had drink specials and the whole thing. Um, but we weren't really VU guys, I would say. We were more like Santa Fe, right? That was that was the other one that was like across the street, right? I say this to say that I don't think I belonged at the VU. I, I didn't feel like I was. I was tough enough or cool enough to be in there. So anyway, I'm in there. I had, I had to sort of host this thing. And I remember I was in the DJ room because um, they were going to give me the microphone. We were going to do some like giveaways and trivia or something. And they were playing Nirvana at the time because this is when the Nirvana album had like exploded. Right. It was never mind. And uh, and I inadvertently like hit something in the in the in the booth and smells like teen spirit auto- automatically turned off. So now I've got like, you know, there's like 150 kids in this bar and the music that they were rocking out to all of a sudden stopped on a dime and they all look up at the booth and I'm standing there next to the DJ and it was totally my fault. I felt really small. It was just not, it was not, the party was not going well. Dave, it reminded me of another moment. Do you want to, you want to talk about what happened? I think this was probably what, 1997. You know what I'm about to say. Oh yeah. This was a classic. It was a Norfolk Tides baseball game. And I, yeah, it was around that time, 95, 96, 97. Uh, We were down visiting my friend Moose, who was in the Navy at the time. And he was living down there in Norfolk. And uh, yeah, we went off the two of us and we went to the game one night and, yeah, it was like it might have been. It went to extra innings, but I, that's beside the point. Earlier in the game, there was a foul ball came to us. We were up in the second deck, and I looked it up. This it's a pretty big stadium. It's like over eleven thousand people, I believe, even at that time. So the foul ball from West Chamberlain, that's who hit the ball. It comes up, and it's it's coming like it looks like it's coming right for us. And and I realize that it's much more Dennis's ball, so I let him call it. He's getting ready to catch it. He reaches over the railing. We were in the first row on the upper deck, and it just trickles through his fingers and drops down to the lower deck, and Dennis got booed by about 10,000 people. It was fantastic. (laughs) And, you know, a lesser man could not handle that, but he has grown from it. He's rebounded and done quite well for himself. I'm not sure which was worse, the dropping the foul ball at, you know, at the Norfolk Tide game or, you know, turning off Nirvana at the VU. I'm really not sure. They were both they were both pretty bad. I was going to say, we think he's doing OK, but probably in the other room, he's got an Ace Ventura shrine like Norfolk Tides 
they wronged me thing going on in one of his closets, probably. And he, he hides it very well, Buck. I know guys that have had I've gotten foul balls at baseball games. And I guess I'll ask both of you first. Have you, either of you ever gotten a foul ball? I got one on a ricochet at a Bowie base house game. I've, I've never gotten any. And all the, all the games I've gone to in my career, Dave, I know you've been to a bunch of ballparks. I've been to a bunch of ballparks. I have never, all the Yankee games, never gotten a, a, a foul ball. In 19, I want to say this was 19, probably like 81. My dad took my brother and I to a Yankees um, Brewers game and I had to go to the bathroom and, you know, my dad didn't want to take me, which was great. So he told my brother, he's like, why don't you take your brother to the, to the bathroom and I'll stay and watch the game. So Jim reluctantly takes me to the men's room while we are gone. This is a true story. If Jim called in right now, he would, he would confirm Robin Yount hits a foul ball. It lands on my seat, Luch. My dad is not fast enough to get the ball. The guy in front of us or the woman in front of us grabbed the ball. We come back. My dad's like, oh, yeah, you guys just you just missed a foul ball. It, bang, it, it bounced off your seat. We're like, what are you talking about? And he's like, he's like, yeah, I didn't get it. The guy, the guy in front of us got it. And then the rest of the game, the guy in front of us is like holding the ball up, being a dick and just kind of showing it to us, the whole thing. I, I kind of feel like you did an impression, your second impression of the podcast of your dad there. If I'm not mistaken, <laughs> there was a little Raj. You're not, if you're I'm not mistaken. Not I could wrong. be wrong. So let's get into Wayne's World. Um, fast facts on Wayne's World. Let's get into the movie. Second SNL film adaptation after the Blues Brothers. Um, I was amazed when I read that. Now, it just it just intuitively would have felt like there were more SNL movies at that point from, um, you know, the Blues Brothers was like late 70s and then all the way to 1992 for the second one. I thought that was crazy. Released in fe- on February 14th, 1992. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, the, it was budgeted at 14 mil and it grossed um, 18 million in its opening weekend. It debuted at number one. Um, and, and in case people forgot, Wayne's World was sort of a, a big deal when it opened. It went on to gross 183 million worldwide. Uh, which at the, at the time for 1992, that's that's a lot of money. Uh, it was the eighth highest grossing film of 1992. I never would have guessed Wayne's World was that high. I would have thought maybe it was like 15 or maybe close to 20 or something like that. But it was, it was within the top 10 of the year. Wayne's World was the highest grossing film of the 11 films based on Saturday Night Live skits. So it's, it's, sort, of, it's sort of a big deal. Uh, directed by Penelope Spheris, who had done mostly documentaries and i think she made her name in in doing a bunch of music videos at the time and this was her first major um studio feature let's look at what siskel and ebert said about wayne's world i'm going to start with roger ebert i walked into wayne's world expecting a lot of dumb vulgar comedy and i got plenty but i also found what i didn't expect a genuinely amusing sometimes even intelligent undercurrent i completely agree with roger ebert gene siskel Call the film a very funny and most original comedy with inspired bits of whimsy. And he ranked it number eight on his list of the 10 best movies of 92. Gene Siskel had Wayne's World in his 92 top 10. That I found a little bit surprising, don't you think? Of course, I did research for the show. I don't know. Is that, can people say that? I don't think they could admit to that. But uh, in researching the show, I was surprised that now, 30 years later, people said, oh, it was a very smart comedy because i don't remember it that way because of probably of that what's where i was in my life at that time but i thought okay well that's just people looking back and the critics you know they want to see the impact it had and you know and that 
but then when you look back, like I did, Denny, I look back at some of the reviews from that time and they did point to it being a smart comedy. And, and, and so I'm just backing up what you said. I was surprised by that, that even back then people were finding it smart because that's not, I wasn't watching it for that. I was watching for fart jokes. Um, but it's good to hear because when you do walk, watch it back, you do get a sense of that there was a lot of smart people involved in putting together, crafting the movie, as opposed to just slapdashing a bunch of skits together. Well, I think that says a lot about Mike Myers' humor and his sensibility and you know, the tone that he brings to a lot of his scripts. But I think it's funny, you just hit on something, Luch. I was telling somebody a couple of weeks ago that I was doing this episode that I'm going to revisit Wayne's World. And uh, this is a, a guy I know out here. And he he said something like he had just recently watched it with his family, I guess maybe a few weeks before that, coincidentally. And he's like, it doesn't it doesn't hold up. It, it hasn't aged well or something to that effect. And I re- obviously revisited Wayne's World to get prepared for this for this discussion, and and I think it held up really well. I mean, what do you, I mean? What do you guys think? I mean, you probably both recently watched it as well, but I still feel like it delivered on a lot of the humor. Oh yeah, I think it stands up fine, and and I think you mentioned it somewhere else here that it really captures that that point in time, that time period. You know, the the sensibilities, the the, the senses of humor, the the things we laughed at. I mean. It really captures what we thought at that time, what we laughed at, and what what was funny to us. I mean, I, I would assume that the three of us saw this movie together, right? I mean, at that point, I'm, I'm doing the Paramount thing. I'm sure I got tickets to some sort of promotional screening. I can't imagine the three of us did not see Wayne's World together, but I'm sad to say that I don't remember seeing it with you necessarily. I do remember seeing it, um, but whether or not you guys were there, let's just assume for the rest of this episode that you were there with me when we saw it. But do you guys even like remember like your reactions to Wayne's World when you first saw it? I mean, does that even like come to mind on like what you must have thought of it at the time? I I remember thinking that it was, uh, you know, the skit on steroids, you know, getting more of the backstory, getting in, filling in some of that. What does Wayne do when he goes home? How does he act? And what does Garth do when he goes home? Um, and I thought that that was interesting to that. But uh, I remember, obviously, and again, my my reaction watching it f- before this was the same as it was 30 years ago. It was this was a nice, you know, hour and a half, hour, 40 minute escape uh, to relive moments that reminded me not only of, you know, what was going on in the movie, but reminded me of where I was and the nostalgia of that. And, and as certainly, you know, a carefree time in my life, certainly compared with the days that we have uh, today. Dave, I mean, where does Wayne's World rank on your list? Because I, I think I know you well enough to know that this movie is like sort of hallowed ground for you, right? I mean, is it like top five comedy for you? It's definitely in my top five. I, I think a clear number one for me is something about Mary, which says a lot about <laughs> my sense of humor and, and everything else. But uh, it's clearly in my top five. I think uh, Austin Powers might be as well. It's pretty close. Um, I think 40-year-old Virgin is way up there for me. And uh, Office Space, I think, it would probably complete my five that I can think of real quick. You're throwing fastballs with that list, Dave. I don't know that that Wayne's World ranks for me high. Uh, Again, when I watched it, it was more just a reminder of the things that we opened the podcast with, you know, with, 
with college and freshman year and, you know, even coming to grips because by 92, we were almost done. So coming to grips with the end and what comes next. And even thinking about Wayne and Garth, who were 20 somethings to living in the basement, you know, and oh my gosh, is that going to be me? Because I don't, can't imagine wearing a tie. I'm, you know, at that same point in my life too. So while the movie, uh, you know, might not be in my top 10, the memories that it evokes are our top 10 because they're from a great time in my life. That's perfectly said. And I completely agree with you. I, I would, I would agree with Dave. Like, I think I've got Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, the first one, probably as my more favorite Mike Myers movie. And I mean, only because of the opening credits of Austin Powers with that crazy music and they all break out into a dance and there's, there's a band and I don't know what's going on. It's, it's just like that movie had me. And then when I met Dr. Evil and he did the whole speech about, you know, the, the famous Dr. Evil speech that we all know, like I, I, I laughed so hard in that, that I had tears rolling down my cheeks, literally um, in the theater. And I can't say that I've seen too many other movies that have, have had that kind of reaction to me. I do think I, I laughed till I cried with something about Mary as well, Dave. So I, I'm right there with you, but Wayne's world didn't do that for me, but it doesn't mean that I didn't love Wayne's world for what it was at the time of my life. And I agree with you, Luch. It just, it reminds me of a, of a time and place in 92 at Maryland where we were all together and we just didn't really have a lot of, a lot of worries at that time of our lives. And it was just a lot of fun quoting it. And, and the movie sort of took, took off across the country in that regard. I guess I want to ask you guys, like why, why did this movie work? It had no business being being as successful as it was. It was based on a strange SNL skit. It has multiple hockey references, which we're going to get into. It features Alice Cooper and a bunch of other strange cameos. It's kind of like, you know, obviously Paramount Pictures at the time, they wanted to be in the Mike Myers business. So they, they I sort of feel like Wayne's World plays to me like Paramount gave Mike Myers a blank check, come back when the movie's done and, and we'll, and we'll put it out there. And, they, and I think when the movie got delivered, they were probably like, what, what is this? This, this is not, this is, I mean, I don't even know how you adapt a, a, a Wayne's world sketch into a feature length movie to begin with, which is a really interesting conceit. But to, to me, the movie, and then I'll, I'll throw it to you guys because I would love your thoughts. The movie works for me because it sort of feels like it was a hybrid. It was like this, like, Big funded studio movie, right? Paramount gave it a gave it gave it a nice you know push, but at the same time, it has like this indie sensibility to it, right? And I think that maybe has something to do with Penelope Spheris and the way she directed that film because it feels sort of small and quirky, yet it's a big studio movie. How, what what do you guys think is the main reason why this movie works as well as it does? As you were saying about like um, Austin Powers, it's it's just more it's a more polished movie. It just feels more polished. It has more special effects. It has bigger sets and everything's bigger. Everything's more in every way. And it's just like you're saying, it's, it feels smaller. It feels like a cult uh, favorite kind of thing. Um, an indie comedy, if you want to call it that. And yeah, it really, I think that's, that's what I like about it even more. Um, and I, and it and it's at its base, I think it's just a, a movie about friends, which you know comes back to that time in our lives where we're making our best friends, and and uh, you know it, it it goes right along with that time and what we were doing in our lives and making friends and having good times and enjoying each other. I don't know that it you know how much mass appeal it has at this point. I don't know that I that 
you know, my teenage kids would sit through it. I think they'd probably say, this is silly. Why are we, why are we watching this? Right. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's some of that, you know, I, as you know, some of the prep work that I was doing, I read an article that talked about how there were so many rewrites that every time, uh, they would do a rewrite, they'd add, uh, the new rewritten section of the movie. They put it in a different color and that by the end they had run out of colored papers. Uh, the director even mentioned doing some on vermilion. I don't even know what color that is. They had gone through so many rewrites. Um, and, and I don't know from, from what I've, you know, looked at lately, I don't know how, if they thought that they had something, um, you know, I, th- I bet there were some execs that were nervous about it, um, you know, getting ready for it. And it's so, again, it's something, it, it struck a chord and whether it was, you know, the characters or like, like Denny, you had mentioned the meta nature of things, um, which was new at the time, but we see a lot of that today. I, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's, you know, maybe it was a product of the times, like you said, Buck, it's, I don't know that even they knew what they had, but it's true though. Like if you think about at the time, and I guess this is what I would tell your kids, right? If they, they didn't want to watch it, that there was a point in time when everybody was talking like Wayne and Garth. I mean, like, I mean, I, I wrote down some of the expressions that, and I, when I revisited the film a few weeks ago, swing obviously is, is a no brainer party on we're not worthy. Um, and then adding not to anything, you know, that you're saying to somebody like, Oh, I like that sweater. Not, uh, there are a lot of things, you know, I even saw that, um, what she, that's what she said came from Wayne's world and not the office, which blew me away. I didn't realize that that it had, but I remember I was just the other night I was watching, uh, 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 baseball highlights and on there, a pitcher had played well and he was coming out of the game and there are people in the front row doing, we're not worthy 30 years later. And, and I, dollars to donuts the people doing we are not worthy have no idea where that came from so yeah and so who who knows how how you write something that's going to hold up for 30 years if you know you're doing at the time but the way it integrated itself into natural speech is just i think you know i think as i watched it again it's so clear to me that mike myers's influence is all over the script and i he wasn't the sole screenwriter i think he he, um, I think he wrote the movie with Bonnie and Terry Turner, if if, uh, if memory serves. But like Wayne's World works because of Mike Myers's unique sensibility, and and you saw it in SNL, you saw it in all the sketches that he did, and I think a lot of the the great lines from Wayne's World have to be from Mike Myers, I would assume. And and it's what it pains me to say that because I, I referenced this earlier at the start that he was known to be very difficult, and I think that he. Uh, and I, you know, I hate even saying it, but like, I guess when they were shooting this film that he, he acted a bit of a, like a diva on the set. And I think he knew he was a big deal and that this movie was probably going to be a big deal. He, he clashed with um, Penelope Spheris quite a bit during production to the point that like, I don't think they were on the same page with final cut. Um, I think, I think the, the amount of fighting that they had led to why she wasn't asked to do the sequel, but I found this interesting quote that she said, Um, about Mike Myers. I hated that bastard for years, she said, who believed Mike Myers dissuaded Paramount from hiring her for Wayne's World 2. But when I saw Austin Powers, I went, I forgive you, Mike. She pauses, voice choked with emotion. You can be moody. You can be a jerk. You can be things that others of us can't be because you are profoundly talented and I forgive you. Do you guys feel differently about Wayne's World knowing that Mike Myers was reportedly extremely difficult to work with? Does that change anything for you, Dave? Not at all. I have heard over the years a lot of people say, well, you know, I I can't really like the Patriots. They got Belichick. I'm like, 
if my team had Belichick and I was winning like five Super Bowls, I'd love the guy. I don't care how he gets there. He, it's the fact that he did it and the fact that, uh, you know, Mr. Myers was able to get this picture made and that character and everything. I'm all for it. I definitely hear what Buck is saying. And, and also too, working in a, in a, in a creative field and, and with creatives uh, and creators, most of my career, I could definitely see that, you know, especially folks who are next level genius, you know, they do have a hard time um, understanding people and, and giving a little bit and compromising at the same time though, you know, the more I kind of read up on the film, um, you know, up to this podcast and reading some of the stuff and Hey, it's my way or the highway. I'm um, keep in mind, like, you know, Myers didn't really have much of a track record at this point. He had been in some skits and, and things like that, but I, I thought it was really kind of uh, gutsy. And I, I did, I did, it did make me think a little bit about him as uh, geez, you know, I wish he, he hadn't done that kind of stuff because again, who was he? But at the same time, you know, uh, I, I think Dennis, that you had mentioned that the the director now looking back is uh, doesn't begrudge him at all and looks at the finished product and says, Hey, um, you know, it was all worth it. Um, I want to make sure I give this guy's due buck. You're laughing. I know you're a big fan of, of Garth Algar. Why is that? He's just a simple, simple guy that has simple joys you know he, there's this girl that he's head over heels for he likes playing the drums he likes loud music he just he likes doing scientific things building robots i mean it's just he, he's simple but he's intelligent at the same time but he has like socially kind of odd things about him that are quirky it's He's just a, he's an interesting character, and he's hilarious in the movie, of course. I did find it funny that Garth was like this man-child, yet he can throw out a gem like, let me tell you something about women, Wing. They want you to come get them. They love it. <laughs> Do you guys think it's fair to say that of the two characters, Wayne and Garth, that Garth is really brings the comedy to Wayne's world? Yeah, I mean Wayne's kind of the straight man, right? I would I would think in the scheme of things. What I found interesting is that of the two, Carvey possibly had a better career. Um, I, I, that might that might not be right either, but um, I don't know. I, I almost feel like I respect Carvey more. I, I also wonder too, and you know, they, the two of them, they are both co-stars of this movie. You know, it's not called Garth's world, but um, you know, the, 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 the credits run, it makes 180, whatever million dollars. And Myers goes on to be the bigger star of the two. And maybe that's the nature of the character. Like Buck was saying that, you know, Garth was the sidekick. So of course, Carvey's not going to get the credit that he deserves for that movie. Uh, but it just seemed interesting. The trajectories of the two went almost, you know, in opposite, opposite directions. It took Carvey some time to, to, to be maybe recognized for how much talent, because, you know, in SNL, he was by far when we talk about those lesser characters that Myers yep. was playing, you know, and, and you're pulling Lothar, within, you know, two or three minutes of talking, you know, Carvey's coming off of the church lady and these ones that also, you know, really burned themselves into pop culture at the time. So it's, to me, it was interesting that they come out of this and Myers goes on to be, you know, a big star and, and Dana Carvey kind of still kind of hides in obscurity, which is interesting. I read that they had a little bit of a falling out, which is, uh, it, it came back to Austin Powers where apparently Dana Carvey, did a really great Lauren Michaels impersonation. Lauren Michaels is the is the producer of, of Saturday Night Live, and I guess his his impersonation of Lauren Michaels was legendary. 
but his impersonation sounded a lot like Dr. Evil. So I guess when um, when Mike Myers was was figuring out Austin Powers and how many characters he was going to play, I don't think he was originally going to play Dr. Evil. I think he was going to you know hire an actor to play that role. But then I guess he had this epiphany that he needed to do it. But what he did with it was he actually channeled the Dana Carvey impersonation and he made that his Dr. Evil. And apparently, and again, it depends on who you ask and what you read and whatnot, but that didn't sit well with, with Dana Carvey because I think it came across that this was a Mike Myers creation. I think that they might have not been close for a little while because of that. I don't think that lasted. One of the things I found really interesting about this movie is that I, I kind of wrote this down that it, it sort of breaks the rules a little bit. Um, and Luch, you, you referenced the, the meta-ness of this film, which we're going to get into in a moment. But the opening sequence, right? Like that in the opening scene of this movie is these guys, they're driving in in Garth's AMC Pacer, the Mirthmobile, and they're they're jamming out to Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. Like, is probably, was, is it fair to say that it's one of the most famous moments of 90s movies? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you can't really think of any movies that had a start like that. And you're right. It's like the, the first couple minutes were like in the basement, just like the show on Saturday night live. Yep. So that was familiar. Then they started with that, with the car scene. It was like, Oh wow. We're, we're going somewhere else now. This is totally different. I remember watching that movie for the first time. And that scene I do remember is that I didn't, I didn't understand what I was seeing. Like I, I was like, Wait, these guys are in this this crappy car with flames on the side, and they're they're jamming to Queen. And I remember there's there's scenes of like the cars driving through this downtown Chicago, and they're driving around. And I just I didn't understand what the hell I was watching. Like I was like, this is like who opens a movie like this? You you just don't see that very often. And it was so different and creative and funny and made no sense that that's what I mean. Like I think I think like right out of the gate, you know, Penelope Spears was like. We're going to do things a little bit differently with this movie. We're going to have this extended sequence. I mean, Luch, I remember like the, the scene, they, they, they pull off to the side, right? And they, they turn off the music and they see their buddy, Phil. He's sitting on a, on a bench, right? He's completely drunk. And the guy doesn't even know where he is. And they're like, Phil, man, you're, you party too hard or whatever. And like they get him, they pull him into the car. He sits in the backseat in the middle. And then they start up the car and then the music comes back on. It, it's a music video, right? I mean... How many people drop a three, four minute music video at the start of a movie? And I think kind of what we were talking about earlier, it, it's the first time we see them like kind of like Bucket said, like out of the basement, right? We start to get that, oh, wait, this movie is not going to be them just having hosts or different guests in the basement with them. We're going to learn, hey, hey, Garth has a car. And he drives around and oh my gosh, they've got other pals. What's this? So I think maybe it does a good job of for the very first time making you realize, oh no, we're going to show you more about these characters than what we see in two minute snippets on Saturday Night Live. Apparently Mike Myers, um, he had a fight with Paramount to get the rights of Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, I guess the studio at the time was pushing for some Guns N' Roses song, um, but Mike Myers threatened to quit if they didn't clear the rights for that song, which they, they ultimately ended up doing. But like, I, I, I will go, here's another hot take, Tommy. I don't even think this movie works what out that opening sequence. I mean, I think that entire opening sequence sets, sets the tone for everything that follows in Wayne's world. And if you don't have that song, you don't have the way that scene is, is directed. I'm not sure if Wayne's world entirely works after that. That's we'll never know. Thank goodness. Not many movies have broken the fourth wall 
you know, I was actually thinking about this when I was watching it. And what I mean by that is right out of the gate, Wayne talks to the camera quite a bit in this movie. Garth does it as well. Um, the only other time I could think of is maybe Ferris Bueller. Yeah, I don't know. Previous, you know, I know, you know, Deadpool brings it back much, much, much later than that. Um, but yeah, no. And I, I love that, you know, because, again, it, it paved the way for you know, shows like the office and, and things like that, where, where you're getting some of that. And it also shows you too, that maybe hearkening back to the SNL format, you know, where Garth or Wayne and Garth are acting as if the audience are there, just like, you know, Myers and Carvey may have, you know, during the show. So yeah, it's just great. And, and when I went to go look back, those were my favorite parts. And Danny, you would tip me off to the brand, uh, you know, the part where he's just uh, the Doritos and the, you would, you, you would made me excited to watch that again. And that's just, that's just great. You know, knowing that they, that movies did that. And certainly they got all the commercials in, in a way where it was, it was kind of tongue in cheek way. It was, it was tremendous. I, those were my favorite parts of the movie when I rewatched. It's like people only do things cause they get paid. And that's just really sad. <laughs> Impression number three. And that's Garth wearing like a full body Reebok gear, right? right. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, I wrote them all down. It was Pizza Hut, it was Reebok, Doritos, Pepsi, and Nuprin. And Dave, I know you and I, we quote this, we quote this character a lot, but um, when they get to Stan Makita's donuts at the beginning after they get out of the car, the camera goes to um, Ed O'Neill, who uh, was coming off of Married with Children at the time. And um, he plays, I think Glenn is the name of the, uh, the, the manager. And all of a sudden he starts talking to the camera, right? And like the camera leaves uh, Wayne and Garth and it follows uh, Glenn. He's like, he's like walking down the counter in, in this donut shop. And he's talking about some crime of passion that we, we think he may have committed. He probably killed somebody, it sounds like. And like, he's like talking to the camera. And again, as a viewer, it created this, it sets this tone and this, this kind of like this manic energy in this movie that you just don't see very often. And I, those are the little moments in this movie that work for me that I, I just don't feel like have been replicated a whole lot elsewhere in, in movies today. And I think that's why it, it works as well as it does. One of the things I love about Mike Myers and one of the things I love about um, Wayne's World is all the hockey references that are in the film. And you being our resident hockey lover, Buck and I love the game as, as well, but I think you, you're at a different tier than, than the two of us. Talk about all the hockey in Wayne's World. Yeah, uh, for me personally, the car scene resonated tremendously as a young uh, street hockey player. That was just the nature of the game. You'd play for three or four minutes, car would come through, someone would yell car, you'd pick up the nets, you'd wait for the car to pass, and then you'd start again. So yeah, that that had me hook, line, and sinker. Uh, I love that he brought hockey to that. And in fact, the NHL used him in a lot of marketing shortly after that, uh, because they had found that he was a Maple Leafs fan. He grew up outside of Toronto, uh, and they were loved to have, especially back in the day, the NHL loved to have some star power. Um, so they were excited to be a part of that, but Stan Mikita's donuts as a playoff of Tim Horton's donuts, uh, which is very, very, very popular here. Um, it may or may not be in uh, other places of the country as well, but it just, just great. And even Stan Mikita, you know, here was one of, if not the greatest player in Chicago Blackhawk history, who I bet no one else outside of Chicago knows, finally getting his due and getting his own uh, coffee place uh, was great. And I loved seeing it. Um, and a great, maybe we talk about why the movie was so successful, maybe because there were 
because it was so random, maybe there were little tidbits in there for everyone that resonated, you know, whether you loved heavy metal or you loved hockey or you loved, uh, you know, uh, uh, cable access TV or you lived in your basement or you're in your 20s or whoever, you know, there was something in there for you. And maybe that's why it ended up working. But I love the hockey parts. But I, I mean, I think the best part about it is that I don't think Mike Myers even cared, like if if any of that stuff even landed with the average audience. I mean, I would imagine that most people that saw Wayne's World in the theater had no idea about Stan Makita. You know, they they didn't they didn't get the reference. Um, they probably, and I think I, I even at the time thought that Stan Makita's was a real place. And for many years, I think afterwards, I think I it was years before I realized that that was actually completely fictional, that there was never a Stan Makita's Donuts. I thought it was a real place too. Yeah, absolutely. And then what about Officer Kaharski, Luch? That's another. He was the uh, He's the police officer that they walk into right when they're walking in. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to show you what a hockey nerd I am. So uh, back in the, I, I wish I had the date, uh, back in the playoffs, probably late 80s, there was an incident in a, a New Jersey Devils game when the New Jersey, a coach went against, or a call went against uh, the Devils and the referee was uh, Dan Koharski and the head coach of the Devils was Jim Schoenfeld and Mr. Schoenfeld uh, on a hot mic uh, referred to uh, the referee as they were walking off together as a fat pig and suggested that he enjoy another donut. Uh, so to have that captured and memorialize that incident, again, another deep cut for a hockey fan, just classic that he chose that to be a police uh, policeman's name because of the donut reference. Uh, and it was just great. It was perfect, perfect, perfect. It is, it is a very deep cut. Um, I want to talk, speaking of hockey, uh, let's talk about Rob Lowe, who is, you know, the, you know, the antagonist in this movie plays Benjamin Oliver. He's the hotshot producer. Um, but before that, he was in Youngblood, which is a, a low tier hockey movie. I'm sorry, Luch, if I'm um, insulting you right now. High tier for you, Dennis. Uh, some of us have fantasy hockey teams named the Hamilton Mustangs, Dennis, which was the team that Dean Youngblood played on. He was number 10. And the goalie of that team was a, a young actor by the name of Keanu Reeves, Dennis. <laughs> Sorry, did that come off as smug? It was it was everything I could have wanted. And uh, Patrick Sweezy's in that <laughs> yes. film as well. He's the it's, captain it's of the squad as well. I forget his name, though. In 2020, during the pandemic, the first year of the pandemic, I I don't know what made me think of Youngblood, but I, I had this like this thought one day. I was like, I haven't watched Youngblood with Rob Lowe in quite some time. And I actually found it, and I actually watched all of it, and I didn't feel that bad about it. Well done. It's It's an awful, awful film. Uh, but the hockey scenes are fantastic. In fact, uh, and you can edit this out, uh, former Philadelphia Flyer great Peter Zezel is in the movie. <laughs> Fuck. He is in the movie. Uh, he is on camera. He goes and talks to Dean Youngblood at one point towards the end of the movie, uh, and he was a actual NHL player, Peter Zezel. I'm going to alienate our viewers um, even further after that. Did you, um, did you see the movie Goon? Yes. Yeah, it was good. I'm a huge fan of that movie. I mean, I think that movie came out, I want to say like 2011 or somewhere around there. But like that movie, for anybody that loves hockey um, and loves hockey comedies, I mean, that movie for me, I, that movie is pretty I wanted fantastic. to hate it. I wanted to hate it and just couldn't. Uh, yeah, it was very, very, very good. Buck, I'm going to throw this to you. Rob Lowe, outstanding in Wayne's World. Oh, yeah. I mean, every single thing he said was funny. I mean, just unbelievably funny just it, it was such a departure from his image it just you know 
he, he kind of felt like the cool guy, but he didn't, he didn't seem like this smarmy character that, that uh, Oliver was. I mean, he, he was just fantastic. Everything, everything he said was funny to me. Apparently um, this movie is credited with reviving Rob Lowe's career following the 1988 sex tape scandal, which was, which, which was a big deal at the time. Um, Rob Lowe said that he discovered his hitherto untapped gift for comedy after meeting Mike Myers, who would later cast him in the Austin Powers sequels. There's, there's a scene where they're, um, when they're showing Wayne and Garth the, the new Wayne's World theme, I guess, like the, they're on the set of the, not, they're not in the basement anymore. They're on the actual TV set and they have the big fancy sign that comes down and, and they, they play the, I guess like the cheesy overproduced Wayne's World theme song. And like, while they're playing that, there's a shot of Rob Lowe and he's like jamming to it. Like he's doing like this thing where he's like nodding his head. Like this music is great. I don't, I don't think I ever noticed it before until I watched it a couple weeks ago that he's doing that. I'm like, wow, this guy is an idiot. He actually really thinks that this music is really good and this is going to be great. And of course, Wayne and Garth think it's, it's just dreadful. Here's a hot take, Tommy, Rob Lowe. I know we all love Rob Lowe in this movie. Uh, I think he'd make a fantastic Damon Killian <laughs> on The Running Man. Now, that is a TV reboot that we desperately need. I know Buck's on my side on this one. Um, I hope someone out there is making that show right now. It's a corrupt, government-run TV network, massively popular game show where prisoners are hunted by gladiators. I know the juicer would love that. Um, a group of resistance fighters led by Ben Richards. Guys, sign me up. Richard Dawson was a terrific Killian, but I think Rob Lowe takes that to the next level. Tommy, why do you have a problem with this hot take? Uh, I don't. Yes, you do. You're such a liar. No, it's, it's perfect. <laughs> I love everything about it. <laughs> Dave, would you would you watch that show? I'd watch it as soon as it came out. I would binge it. Right that first weekend. Absolutely. Um, and The Running Man actually holds up pretty well. I must have, I think I watched that during the pandemic at one point. I mean, it's not a good movie. Let me be clear, not a good movie, but, uh, but it holds up. Like, I think the premise is really interesting. And, and joking aside, big production budget that a Netflix or an Amazon that can throw at something like that, I really do think there's a 10 part show about The Running Man that would be killer. If I'm not mistaken, there is a hockey based villain in that. One of the bad guys who come, yeah. Ooh, ooh, good. That's a deep pull right there. Wait, do you remember which character that was? Jim Brown played a character named Fireball. Some guy played a character named Dynamo. There was a character named Buzzsaw, and then Jesse Ventura played a character. And then, sure enough, Sub Zero was a hockey-based uh, villain-type guy who was tracing after Schwarzenegger and Running Man. If Juicer is going to listen to this podcast, and I'm sure he will. He would have died to call in because I know The Running Man is one of his favorite movies. And we all know what a fan of Jesse the Body Ventura he was. Um, I forgot Jesse Ventura was in this as well because he was in Predator that same year, just for those keeping score at home, 1987. Favorite scene or quote from this movie and impersonations are obviously welcome. Um, one that I was hoping we wouldn't skip over that I absolutely love. And I've kind of lost the wording over the years, but here it is. I once thought I had mono for an entire year. It turns out I was just really bored. I thought that was a fantastic quote. You got me thinking about the Alice Cooper thing, which was brilliant because here is Alice Cooper, not really known as an intellectual breaking down 
where Milwaukee came from. Again, when we talk about, you know, taking what you think is going to happen next and, and standing it on its head, like, it's like they meant to do that every time. Like even when you talk about the opening sequence, we're going to show a car driving their road, but then they're going to stop and they're going to pull somebody over. We're not going to really address what he's doing because you would think that he would be important. And then the scene's just going to continue because you wouldn't think it would. You think it would just, it's going to end there and they're going to talk to this guy and we're going to get into the movie. This is the same thing. Again, standing what you think is going to happen on its head. Uh, the Alice Cooper thing was great. Laverne and Shirley too. Scooby-Doo, uh, you know, Scooby-Doo ending at the end. Like, what are we doing? Like, just great, great stuff. That's why I'm talking about earlier about breaking the rules. This movie just kind of th- did its own thing. Listen, I, I love the Alice Cooper sequence. That's absolutely my favorite moment of this movie. Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to play that scene in this podcast. Um, this is a Wayne's World was released by Paramount Pictures. I'm giving you guys all full credit for this movie, but I am about to play that entire three-minute sequence of Wayne and Garth going into the green room with Alice Cooper. So let's listen to that right now. Alice, is this cool? Yeah, come on in. Sorry to bother you, but we had to come and tell you how much we really enjoyed the show, didn't we, Garth? <laughs> oh, thanks. We're not mental or anything, so don't be afraid. My name is Wayne, and this is Garth. Nice to meet you guys. So, do you come to Milwaukee often? Well, I'm a regular visitor here. But Milwaukee has certainly had its share of visitors. The French missionaries and explorers were coming here as early as the late 1600s to trade with the Native Americans. In fact, isn't Milwaukee an Indian name? Yes, Pete, it is. Actually, it's pronounced Miliwake, which is Algonquin for the good land. I was not aware of that. I think one of the most interesting aspects of Milwaukee is the fact that it's the only major American city to have ever elected three socialist mayors. Does this guy know how to party or what? Huh? Huh? That's fantastic stuff right there. Milwaukee has had three socialist mayors. Buck, how many times have I texted that to you through the years? <laughs> many, many times. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's it, it's always funny. I mean, that, that whole scene is, is just great. Yeah. It is Algonquin for the good land. <laughs> Apparently, um, I did research on this, that Alice Cooper was a huge history buff. And I guess he thought that he was only going to be used for like a minute or something like they were just going to have him say some stupid line. And then I guess once they had him, they, they this scene, I guess, played out the way it did. And he was in it for far longer than I think he ever thought he was going to be. In it. And to his credit, because I think it's one of the, the funniest three minutes of the movie is with is with Alice Cooper. Um, a couple of couple lines, a couple of things I'll throw you guys. Um, I love the names of the bands playing at the Gasworks in the beginning when they go to Gasworks. The Jolly Green Giants is one of the bands that's playing that night, as well as the Shitty Beatles. And you guys remember who the uh, the bouncer was outside the Gasworks? What um, what musician? Meatloaf. The part I love is the fact he's trying to give them a high five, and they just they they just walk past him. Uh, a couple of random facts: uh, Dana Carvey um, putting on Garth's over. So I didn't know this. I guess when he played Garth, I guess he had some sort of like device where he he did some sort of overbite with his face to, I guess, Garth's teeth stick out a little bit more than normal. Um, I didn't realize that that was something that Dana Carvey did in that performance, but apparently the way he did that was causing serious jaw pain that I guess he needed bags of ice on his face every night after shooting because it hurt so much the way he was playing Garth. Garth was based on Dana Carvey's brother. That's Dana Carvey actually playing the drums. Tina Carrere 
sang all her own vocals. Uh, so when she's she's the lead singer of the band Crucial Taunt in the movie, I had no idea that she sang all all the songs. Yeah, I particularly noticed that when I was watching it the last couple of days. You know, she sounded great. I mean, it's like I kind of almost wonder like how they didn't you know actually get into music and like like she actually had more of a music career. Apparently, Dave. On that note, she won Grammy Awards and uh, for her Hawaiian music. She's from Hawaii. And apparently she's had, I guess, outside of her acting, she's she's a musician as well. And she's won several Grammy Awards for her music in Hawaii. I hope she doesn't listen because she'll be upset that Buck did not know that, that she has a Grammy Award. You think that she could be in the Running Man TV show, guys, that we're, that we're going to get made? What do you think, Dennis? <laughs> I, I think that we should give Tia Carrera a small part. I mean, I'm just saying. I'm on board. Luch, I think we've got to set the record straight on Jeff Speakman and the perfect weapon. So tell our listeners a little bit about how well, – tell, tell everybody who Jeff Speakman is and what the perfect weapon is. Well, Jeff Speakman is the perfect weapon, if I'm not mistaken, although I, I got a Crib Notes version of the movie. I did not watch it. Jeff Speakman was the master of Kenpo Karate, which at the time in the early 90s was very unique <laughs> to this part of the world, and it was brought to us by Master Jeff Speakman who signed a multi-picture deal with Paramount, possibly, to appear in a series of movies to be akin to Steven Seagal. This would be Jeff Speakman. Now, I only know this through you, Dennis, because you interviewed Jeff Speakman. You brought all of his promotional materials back to the dorm. You, I read your article in the Diamondback newspaper featuring Jeff Speakman, I know I've seen Jeff Speakman's eight by ten glossy. That's all through you, man. That's on you. I don't see. This is where I I don't see it this way. I, I recall you and I were both writing for the Diamondback, and I, I recognize that you only wrote a couple of things, but I wrote a lot. But I'm positive that you and I went to whenever we met Jeff Speakman at his hotel room in downtown DC. We went together. Didn't we go together? That is the royal we, my friend. That was just you. I did not attend anything. I would have been too scared to go on the metro at that point in my life. I was just <laughs> that I believe. suburban, right, suburban that I believe. Buffalo kid, never really meant for mass trans- transit. That Yeah, there's no way you could have got me on the T till I was at least a junior. Didn't, but didn't you interview somebody that I went with you? Like, didn't I escort you to something? It wasn't Speakman? No. Tom, I, I got to tell you, I don't believe this. I honestly think that you wrote that feature about Jeff Speakman. I don't, I don't, why would I have done it? I have no interest in that guy. I wouldn't have done that. Wasn't that, wasn't that yours? You had no like, interest I, I, in 1492, yet we had to live with all your promotional images and your posters everywhere. Like it was the greatest movie ever. And 1492 wasn't the greatest movie ever. We won't be doing a podcast about 1492 Conquest of Paradise. I could tell you both that right now. Guys, my time at Maryland was. I was thinking about this the other day. Just a a truly wonderful experience. I made the most out of my my four years at, at school, and I and I cherished those memories. But you guys played a a significant role in that, and it's honestly it's been fantastic to have you back on the show to relive. I guess that moment in time. Um, Wayne's World won't win any awards, <laughs> uh, but it's a special film for me, and it always reminds me of the two of you every time, and that's pretty high praise. Uh, so thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate you guys. I appreciate your time. And 
as Garf says at the end of the credits, I just hope that you didn't think it sucked. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. Uh, it was really, really nice. And it's, yeah, it's such a great chance to catch up with you guys. Uh, again, you know, it, just like you said, it, it's the movie is one thing, but the memories that, that, that tag along with this one, make it truly special. A super fun time and really enjoyed it. And as you're saying, it really brought back some great memories of a great, you know, period in my life and ho- hopefully yours as well. Uh, one last order of business guys for the closing music, which I usually add in post-production so we can either get all moody and go with Dreamweaver by Gary Wright, which uh, plays a role in the film. Or, you know, we can bring back the Noah's Arcade rap. What say you? I, I was almost th- I was thinking you were going to say maybe some crucial taunt. Shitty Beatles? There's no wrong answer. I think it's Rap City. I, I don't even think it's close. It's funky and fresh. We got to use it again. It is chill. It is fresh. This was back by popular demand. I'll be back in a few weeks. Uh, We're going to revisit the Quentin Tarantino classic from 1992. I'm in a 1992 uh, thing right now. I'm just celebrating a couple of movie anniversaries, but we're going to do Reservoir Dogs with my buddy Lance Newhouser. He's going to be on soon. He was on last year. We're going to bring him back. We're going to talk dogs as well as our favorite Tarantino films. I'm really excited about that conversation. That'll be in a few weeks. Until then, uh, thanks for listening as always, and we'll be back soon. Thanks, everybody. Come bust a move where the games are played. It's chill, it's fresh, it's Noah's Arcade. Come bust a move where the games are played. It's chill, it's fresh, it's Noah's Arcade. Come 